Welcome to That Shit Show, a podcast about overcoming trauma. I'm Emma Castle. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the show, Mark Cavallo. Mark Cavallo is a coach. So he also, he helps young adults, um, young professionals who are experiencing blocks in their careers, but often that turns into more deeper work. Uh, So Mark has a lot of experience with psychology, um, therapy, that kind of thing. Uh, But not so long ago, Mark experienced some pretty major trauma in his own life. And that's what we're going to talk to him about today. Um, So welcome, Mark. Hello. How are you? Good, good, good. Um, Mark's joining us all the way from Amsterdam, so you might detect a slight accent there. So, Mark, <laughs> tell me what happened. What happened with your daughter? It was about two years ago now, wasn't it? Um, yeah, it was two years and it's probably just over two and a half years. So it was October 2017, mm-hmm. the 9th of October at 11.25, <laughs> um, to be precise. So Mila, that's her name, um, was at school. It was a normal school day, Monday. And I got a call from her mum around that time in the morning saying that, um, well, actually, she was in the ambulance and there was all this noise, you know, the, the sirens. So, of course, I knew something had happened, but she couldn't get it out. She was all over the place. So, um, but that, what she ended up saying was something happened. She was having a headache and it was, um, a brain hemorrhage, but it took him a while to realize she had a brain hemorrhage. She was rushed to hospital that day in the morning. So I had to go there in an Uber. Um, I mean, it's all, as probably people who have experienced something similar, a lot of it I can't remember. That first part, I remember going there and all that, but and seeing Miller lying on a, what do you call this, um, a surgery bed. Yeah. They'd already prepped. They knew she was coming. So the whole surgery team was there, and we were thrown into this room and said, you've got 30 seconds to say um, whatever you want to say, huh? But she was uh, unconscious, although her eyes were really flickering, like backwards, and you could see the whites of her eyes. It was really bizarre. And her leg was, her left side was spasming because it was her right brain hemisphere. Um, so I remember that bit. And then they, she just went and they took her to surgery. And then apparently we had a 10 to 15 minute debrief with the nurses, which I really don't remember, which I find really weird. But they apparently debriefed us on what they think it was or what they saw on the scan. And I really don't remember that. So that's interesting how the brain just blocked that out. And then we waited seven and a half hours in the room upstairs. Um, saw the surgeon once in that time. Came to tell us um, things were okay. That's what he literally said. And I remember giving him a bollocking because I was like, that's not a word. In Dutch, of course, I said, that's not a word okay. That's what you say when you don't know what to say. Me being, you know, Mr. Egghead Intellectual or whatever. Um, I remember that as well. And then later she came out, about seven and a half hours later, eight hours, we were at Atsia, or she came into the, what do you call this, um, IC, intensive care uh, children thing. Um, and she's all bandaged up and everything. And I remember that they woke her up a bit and she could recognize, well, she knew her name and she responded. And then they tested her languages and all that. So she could speak in three languages still. So then I would, yeah, I remember thinking, oh, well, can't be that bad if she says things in three languages, ate something. And then the rest was like one month of kind of, um, well, she was in hospital for a full month. 
with full care and all that. And her left side um, had been knocked out more or less. So her left arm, her left uh, leg, face. Um, and so in the beginning, she was staring at the clock on the wall, you know, one position the whole time. It was kind of really surreal, to say the least. Um, but and she couldn't move on her side, she couldn't move. Right. What's that? Okay, how old is Mina at this time? How old was she? She was yeah. 10. 10 and, yeah, just turned 10 in three months or so. Okay, so she's in the uh, Dutch equivalent of year five, I'm guessing? Yes, I guess so, because it goes to year six. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it does over here, yeah. Uh, she would have been in year four then, I think. Okay, so she's a little girl. And, okay, does she live with you normally? Like, do you yeah. have, like, yeah, okay. Um, we so you. A, we have a... Yeah, week uh, on and off with her mum. Okay, yeah, right. And her mum is like up the road. <laughs> okay, so you have a good relationship with her mum. Uh, it's um, reasonable, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. So what were you doing when you got this jumbled, jumbled up phone call from your ex-partner saying you've got to come to the hospital? Um, I was on the phone with work our company, the other company that does um, conferences. And I remember getting the call from um, her mum and she never calls me. So I ignored it the first time and she called again. And I said to my colleague, oh, my you know, business partner, it's weird, she never calls me, what's going on? And then the third time she called, that's when I hung up. So I was on the phone call with someone else standing in my living room on a really nice day, I think it was. I remember it was kind of sunny. And then, um, then I realized, this can't be just a call because she's never done this before in all these years, 10 years. And so I took the call and I kind of thought I, this is not going to be good because um, it was obvious from her insistence, you know, that she, she needed to tell me something. So, yeah. And then I just sort of dropped the phone and ran out the door. As soon as she started sort of talking, I thought, okay, if she can't talk and there's this siren going off and she's hysterical then i uh, just said where are you and where are you going and that's when i got in the uber and raced off to the hospital right so you said you don't remember some parts of that day but do you remember the waiting like when you were there waiting for that seven and a half hours um yeah. so what was that like that was well it went really slowly it was kind of we were in shock because her mother and i we don't really talk a lot we talk when we have to and that held true in that situation too which was i thought i remember thinking this is even more surreal than our daughter being in the thing is that we can't even talk with our daughter in surgery and we wait in this massive waiting room for parents of children and there's one or two other people and we just sat at a table separately or whatever. And I remember texting my best friend and saying, um, oh, this has happened and blah, blah, But like, it was a headache. Oh, by the way, um, hi, Miller's in the surgery. And then I kind of didn't want to tell my family yet because I thought, you know, what, what am I going to say? And I don't want to get everyone. So I don't remember if I did that or not, but I remember just sitting there, not doing anything, didn't read anything. I played a little bit with my phone, but not really. And now and again, um, me and her mum said, do you think she'll be all right? 
and that's it. But we didn't really do anything. There was nothing to do. So we just sat there. I, I think it just went in a blur mm-hmm. and waited right. until the evening. So she comes out of surgery and you they do the language test and she's eating something. And so at this point, I guess, like, do you know that her whole left side has kind of gone for the time being? Um, no, because she was really heavily bandaged around the head and she was sedated. Of course, she had morphine and all that. That wasn't clear. It was clear in the first or second day afterwards. They moved her into the children's ward. Um, and I think when she started to come around, she was um, not moving really. And then she was staring at one side. And apparently, I don't remember there's a name for that, but you stare at the opposite side, I think, or the same side as to where the, the hemorrhage happened. The eyes right. would get glued to the right side in her case. And there's a name for that. I don't remember what it is, but that's normal that if you have a severe bleed on the brain, that the eyes will focus on that side for some reason for a time. Then we had to train her to look left and then her eyes would snap right. And then we trained her with a finger to look left and her thing would snap right. But then, yeah, soon after I realized like, why doesn't she move her left hand or leg? And then the doctor said, well, it's been such a heavy bleed on the right side that for now, or the motor functions on the left have been, and she, her face was frozen on the left as well. So she couldn't smile properly. She was smiling on the right side, but she could move her eye. And then gradually you saw it, you know, um, the face started to slowly, slowly come back, but that took time. And she was completely dependent again. She couldn't do anything really. She couldn't um, eat properly. She couldn't turn in bed. She couldn't do anything. She couldn't go to the daughter, of course. So she was completely back to almost being a baby. Right. So even when she came home, was she still in that state when she was released a month after this happened? Well, from the month, they got her to the stage in the hospital where um, she could sit in a wheelchair mm-hmm. because for a month um, she couldn't move. So we would turn her, me and her mum, yeah. we'd take, we would let sleep there night on, night off in the room yeah and so we would do a lot of the care for her because the doctors were doing the medicines not a bit i think she liked it more that we were doing the turning and the nappy changing and all that yeah and after a month um she had her left leg moving a bit and they had a strapped her left arm so she wouldn't you know, dislocate the shoulder or whatever and then she went three months to internal therapy to um physio in a special mm-hmm. center not in amsterdam but outside as a resident so it was a hospital but then for rehab and there she um, slept, lived. And again, we went up and down one night each, me and her mm-hmm. mum. It's only around 20 minutes from Amsterdam, half an hour. Um, so, but she was still completely dependent because her arm was not moving and she couldn't even go to the toilet. So we had to push her over on a wheelchair and look after her, you know, um, and hope that she would recover a lot, you know, to become independent again. Um, and they did, she did. After three months, she could walk reasonably well. And her arms started to move a little bit. Um, but they never really gave her any therapy for the arm. 
uh, then he'd focus really on the walking mm-hmm. and on the independence so that she could get out of there within three months. And she did. And then she came home and then she started school slowly after right. that period. Okay. So did they tell you why this happened? Like, is this just a freak thing that could happen to yeah. anyone? Yeah. Apparently, the best we got was that it was a freak thing. She was born with something, a malfunctioned or a, a malformed um, network of vessels in the brain, you know, where the, the big artery comes into your brain, into your head, and then it, dis- it, it dissipates into smaller vessels that take the blood throughout, yeah, inside the head. And there, where the artery meets the network, there's a weakness somewhere, and the blood pressure of the blood going into your head kind of burst one of these veins or whatever they call them. And um, it literally bled onto the brain. And when that happens, the brain starves. It gets starved of oxygen. Ah. It's not like if you have a blocked uh, blockage in the, you know, one of the veins or whatever, then mm-hmm. it's different because you can recover much better. But when blood contacts the brain, it's like um, bleaching of coral reef, if you like. It never comes back. It's a part of the brain that's just killed off. And it's, and about a third of her right hemisphere is not there anymore. Right. Okay. The whole third was pretty much destroyed by this massive bleed. And it was just a freaky bad luck sort of thing, as far as they can tell. Okay. And so going forward in time again, she goes back to school. She's missed some school. Like, does life kind of go back to normal a little bit? Like week on, week off with you and your ex-partner. She goes back to school. How does she cope with school? Well, the interesting thing is um, she just wanted to go back to school. She wanted to go back to normality. And she coped, she started one day and then one half and two, and they built it up slowly. She could do it much faster than the school would let her do it, if you like. They had very limited experience with, they had one child also in her school who had the same thing, but then four or five years before, Mm -hmm. who lives one street away, which is kind of weird, but, um, so she picked it up really well and really fast and Miller, maybe being a child, pushed herself to walk and, you know, we'd practice walking to school. It was, it's, I think, 350 metres, which when you think about it, she could do, you know, running backwards with her eyes closed <laughs> before. And now it became this big Olympic uh, kind of, you know, um, target. How could she make it? How many breaks did she fall? Because she fell. Um, but she was driven. And she wore a helmet. She wore a little plastic helmet for the first um, to protect because one of the five operations that they did on her took uh, the right part of her skull out from yeah. the front above the eye right to the back because she had five operations. Well, four in the hospital um, for the brain and then one to replace the skull piece later. So she had to wear this little brown helmet. And I remember in the first few days was I was driving at a school in the, in the, the wheelchair with a stick and all that and sometimes in her onesie and i used to look at her and think i wonder what she's thinking like everyone's staring at her because who how often do you see a young kid with a weird plastic helmet mm. and you could still see her face a little bit not even sometimes in a onesie with a prosthetic thing on her left foot because she couldn't you know the foot was a bit floppy so she had all these things that she had to put up with then her strapped arm 
So she she was different. Um, but she still wanted to do it. She just thought, and she knew she was different. It's not like she didn't have the awareness at that age that she was different. She knew she could see what she looked like and all that. But she decided that that was going to school was more important than not going to school. And yeah, she just wanted to get on with it. Maybe she thought, I think she thought that the more progress she made, then it would become 100% recovery or something like this. Yeah, yeah. She was very motivated to get away from that situation. Yeah. And we we basically supported her, I mean, you know, as much as we could the whole way through. Um, not carried her, but made it as normal and as acceptable as possible that that's the way it was. And let's go for whatever we can, whatever you can to recover and make it fun and challenging and rewarding to set goals and all this. So that was my uh, that was my um, way of dealing with it as well. Okay. Just to turn it into a game <laughs> as much as possible and set short-term rewards mm -hmm. if she was into it. And she was. She's not anymore. But she was for two years, both for two years. So where is on. she at now? Like what level? Like is she 100%, you know, as much as you can know that? Like where is she at? She's uh, cognitively, which is obviously for me, well, anyway, the most important She's very, um, she's Mila. Um, she's learning like everyone else. She has to, you know, she's just, I don't like the word normal, but she's, I didn't see so much difference in any cognitive skills. So mm -hmm. she learns and expresses herself like she always did, I suppose. The only big difference is she's much more sensitive emotionally um, to negative energy or to negative anything she might deem as criticism she takes very personally um so she's very she's very fragile sometimes emotionally that's how i see her now but it's also she's nearly 13 so it's a combination and physically she walks she rides a three-wheeler bike she's independent like very independent she does a shoelaces somehow and her and her jacket with a thing and she does that with one functioning right arm and the left arm that can move but can't can't move the hand um but somehow she's learned through therapy to to do her shoelaces you know she does all her dressing and undressing she's just me that she does her own thing she folds her own clothes she's very proud that way um i used to do it now she's like nope you don't do it properly i'm gonna so she takes an hour to fold her clothes whereas i would take five minutes and that for me is like incomprehensible. I think I don't remember being 10 or 12 or 11 and folding my own clothes. So she's, yeah, she's there. She's getting there. Okay. And what about you? How are you feeling about all of this? <laughs> like this is a huge thing to happen. And even with your yeah. incredible skills, with your background and knowledge in psycho psychology and therapy and, you know, understanding human emotion and behavior. Culture, yeah. yeah. You know, like you have well, a mean, good I, foundation, I, I, but when it actually happens to you and your baby, how do you cope yeah. with that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, um, intuitively is the best answer. I think I, if I look at it now, I, I, I remember everything I did 
was, I don't think I thought about it too much, but I just, maybe I blocked it, the negative stuff out because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to support her. So I think I, I drove through that period like very stoically and made the best of it and made it fun. And then I spent the first month researching these things in children, hemorrhages, and rang the world. I rang doctors in America and universities in Australia, about seven countries, 19 therapists in Holland to look for a neurophysio. So I got as much information and possibilities as you know, I could. Because here, which is another story, they wouldn't really help her arm because they don't have the, the right knowledge to do full-on rehab for that kind of thing. And I knew that. So I fought tooth and nail to get the people to help and um, found the people to help. And so emotionally it was a blur and it was numb because I think I, back then I thought if I don't, because a mum was emotional, was herself and couldn't really do anything practically or didn't make any decisions practically, just left everything to the doctors and everyone around. Whereas I, when I heard what they said about she'll never, you know, she'll probably not walk properly. She won't um, use the arm ever again. And I thought, no, you don't know that. So I kind of denied that and said, no, we're going we're gonna to do what we need to do to get this girl you know, independent back on her feet. And if I, I think if I had been allowing myself to feel the whatever I would have felt, I think the shock and distraught and all that, it wouldn't have, I couldn't have done what I did. But now I'm dealing with, so it took me two years maybe before I started feeling what had happened and I still feel it now. I'm starting to deal with it now, almost three years after it happened, because I see Mila as more and more independent and she's cool with it as much as she can be. She's been like that for a while. So it's up to me now to um, digest what happened because I feel that, you know, if you block an emotion, it doesn't go away. It comes back in different ways. It makes you feel something, it might not be the right emotion, but it's there. So I recognize these feelings. Uh, when I think about it, it's like it happened yesterday sometimes, and I know I haven't processed a lot of it, so I'm processing it now. And um, I think that was the price I thought was worth paying. Why not? Because um, we got it well, we got her, and she got herself to the point where she can go to high school on a bike, which is kilometers away. She can study and all that, and she's positive and pretty confident in herself and accepts who she is. Um, and that's all really you can really hope for as a parent, isn't it? Don't care if her arm or whatever isn't 100%, you know, if that's what it is, as long as she can accept it and she makes the best of it and she enjoys her life and she is who she is. And that seems to be the case. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, so, that, well, that was a roller coaster. <laughs> and oh, it still is sometimes. Yeah, well, what I'm really hearing is that you went into this really pragmatic problem solving mode where you spent a lot of time really focused on the problem um, of like trying to make this as functional and practical as possible for Mina's sake, because it sounded like nobody else was going to be able to do that. No one else was in a position to do that. And 
But now, like, would you describe how you're feeling now as like post-traumatic stress or like have you sought help to help you process these emotions or are you sort of trying to do it yourself because you've got so much knowledge, you know, of this kind of stuff or? Yeah. Mm. I wouldn't say post-traumatic stress because I've been working on it for a while and I just allow to happen what happens. So if I get triggered in it, I allow that to be and I feel it a lot. Um, I journal. I've been to a therapist and it didn't really, maybe it wasn't allowing it or I don't know what, but it was a, a male therapist and we ended up having good conversations about grief and things like that. But I don't think I did a lot of work on it. So I'm allowing it just to happen as it happens. And um, it seems to be working in terms of, I feel much more balanced again. Um and able to deal with whatever comes up. So if I feel it, I allow it to be, it's fine. If I feel sad for whatever reason, and I know it's related to that, then it's fine. I don't try to rationalize it or think it away. It's, it's perfectly good. And I think it's a delayed reaction in some respects to you know, what happened and what's changed um, and what she lost in terms of her mobility. But it doesn't mean I don't accept it because um, I do, and I know that Mida and she's done her best and she's gotten to where she is, and it's good, it's enough for her. Yeah. Um, and she's, you know what I mean? So it's a constant ongoing thing, but I feel it getting lighter in terms of the sadness, um, the regret, if you like, which is, I know it's not a very useful way of looking at it, but it's the way it is. In the beginning, I really was like, come on, we're gonna get this arm going, we're gonna get this arm going. Um, and now I'm like, well, okay, she's less motivated. She's happy. I'm going to allow it to be like that. It's my responsibility, I think, as a parent to accept it and to give her the space to be who she is and not, she never, I don't think she ever felt that it wasn't good enough, but there is a danger if she's pushed too much by me to work on herself physically, that she might get to start thinking, why the hell are you doing this? Because she said to me recently, I don't understand why I have to do all these exercises. What for? So she's not seeing any more progress or whatever. And she's questioning, I think, why is he pushing me? I pushed, I used to push her a lot, you know, and, and do all kinds of things in the house, turn the house into a, into a funny um, obstacle course um, where we'd have to time each other. It was a lot of fun. She could jump on the lounge and make a mess. And so that really motivated her. And now she's nearly 13, it's like, why am I doing these exercises? They're not doing anything. Mm. In other words, I'm not progressing. I'm not an idiot. You don't need to push me anymore. So I'm giving that space to, I'm like, yep, that's fine. You're right. There is a basic amount you'll always need to do mm. because otherwise the functioning of the muscles and the joints, you can see it start to go backwards really quickly. That's how it is. It's not like training, you always get better. It doesn't work like that. Um, so I, I try to keep it to the minimum now and get her to motivate herself to do it. Uh, and for the rest, allow her just to get on with it. Okay. Get on with your life now. Go and have fun. Yeah. Discover what you want to do in your spare time, what turns you your brain on or whatever. Very creative now. That's changed too. There's much, there's much more other things that are giving her pleasure in life than this competitive thing that we used to do to, you know, to get her motivated to do her therapy. 
in fun ways. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm okay now. Now I'm focusing more on me um, because she needs a space and she's turning into a teenager and thank God. <laughs> <laughs> and all that rebelling stuff is coming up, which I think, hallelujah, that's a great thing that she's pushing away from us and she wants to do her own thing. And I think, yes, that's healthy. Push, push, push. So I really like that. I think that's a good sign. And it's like, that, that was also in doubt at a certain point because when you hear all the negative prognosis and um, they always give you the bad stuff, don't they? The probably worst case scenario. It does kind of stick in your head at some point. They want to do that to cover themselves and to prepare you. And a lot of parents, they told me, um, accept that and never, never fight for the children. Never. Just sit down and go, okay, you're the boss. And end up staying in wheelchairs for the rest of their lives. And then it, it's often a mental game um, and an emotional game rather than a physical one. Uh, that's what I think anyway. And they told me that at the end of her stay there, that if we hadn't done it, if I hadn't pushed her, pushed them, um, she wouldn't have come that far. And he said, you know, you need to, it's your responsibility now to go and continue fighting to find the right therapy for her because you won't find it otherwise here. Mm, we, okay. we, we're not, yeah. So we did that and um, yeah, and now she's, now she's fine. Now she's a pain in the bum, 13 year old, thinks I'm the dumbest thing and most embarrassing thing that she's ever seen. <laughs> ah, no, that, that must feel pretty good. <laughs> most parents would be like, oh my God, we're heading into the nightmare years, but I'm guessing Part of you is no. like, hey, I'm so glad you're here. Like, I'd rather you be here being a pain in my ass than not be here. I said that, that to a girlfriend last night. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know? And I guess, but I back to grief for a second. Do yeah. you ever grieve for what you, like, you know, the future's imaginary, um, but do you grieve for what she could have been or what could have, what those years could have been for her as opposed to what actually happened? Do you ever think, oh, I feel mm. so sad that she missed those couple of years and that you know her life's taken this different course no that not no i've never um and i don't think i ever will i think i'm i'm the, i think what helps me too is i am quite i'm into the stoics stoicism and it's not a it's not a philosophy of not feeling that's what a lot of people think and i think in english you use the word stoic to mean someone who just is like a piece of wood um but stoicism is not about that um, it allows you, what allows me to look at what is and not what could have been, what I can influence, what I can't. It's just basic pragmatic stuff and realistic stuff with a lot of emotion around it. So with Mila, it's like, I have no idea how she would have been had she not had this uh, hemorrhage. But what I do see is that she's got things like painting and whatever she wasn't doing before. And she's got a, a kind of, empathy that she has that she don't think she really had when at the same age all the way through before suddenly came her ability to feel a lot more what other people are feeling and my moods and that and herself self-knowledge she seems to have a lot of big grip on what she feels and what she needs she's much less um you know, distracted by stuff. She doesn't get into arguments with kids like she used to, like get upset if a girlfriend, you know, would not play with her or something. Um, I don't know. She's got this slightly more 
settled approach to life not practical but more i don't know how to describe it it's almost like she knows what's happened but she can't put it into words yet and she has the wisdom of it without being able to express it if you know what i mean like people see something in her now that know her all her life mm. and this kind of like comes around this thing about wisdom or, or self-knowledge which is what i'd love to coach about <laughs> but yeah. i'm not doing that with her of course so no i don't i don't regret anything in terms of i don't wish it wouldn't have happened i think that's life you know unfortunately that's life and it's up to us to deal with it and make the best of it and i think that's all you can do make the best of it get on with it um and see what happens after that she's just starting so there's many things that came i think from it that she wouldn't have had without it there were things taken like her physical especially and that can play through on self-confidence and all that but who knows how that's going to pan out because you don't need to have a hemorrhage to be a not self-confident person. There's a lot of good stuff and um, a lot of blessings because considering the size, one third of your right side gone. I mean, she, she, everything's fine. Everything's great. The only thing is that a bit of physical stuff has gone. I mean, how lucky is that? It's easy to be me and say that when she's like she is. But I wonder what I would have said if, if she was in a wheelchair, not talking or in a vegetative state or something, you know? So I really count my blessings, count her blessings, and just have this drive now to enjoy every moment of life. And that's for me too, to maximize my pleasure in life, which is learning as well, um, and seeing things for what they are. And the little things don't matter anymore. And I think she's got a bit of that too. So no, there's no, I never think about wonder what she would have been like. You know what she said the other day, though? Because she doesn't talk about it. You know, kids don't talk about trauma like that. Yeah. Um, not yet. And she never talks about what happened. No? If, you, if you go to her and say, hey, I heard, she'll go, yep, yeah, uh, anyway, she won't like you. <laughs> she'll block you <laughs> on her Instagram or whatever. She says to me the other day, so we were sitting there, she was watching a, um, this is um, American gymnast who won all these things. She was on the news or something. So I was watching Miller, really watching the screen. Miller used to do gym, gymnastics. Mm. She loved it, right? Typical kid. She'd climb and jump and headstand all over the place. And now she can't do that. But, uh, and I said, oh, um, what are you looking at, you know? And then I saw that, of course. And she goes, oh, I don't know, there's some girl. I said, what, what do you think about? What do you think about when you watch that? And that's a bit of a difficult question for a 12-year-old. She's going, oh, I don't know. But she's really good at it. And I said, you miss it. And normally, when I've tried to broach a subject, I get this slap in the head, like, what an idiot question, and blah, blah, blah. But then she goes, hmm, not really. But you know, I used to like it, right? And I said, well, I used to live it twice a week at the thing, competitions. Uh, don't you ever think, oh, my God, I wish I'd love to be able to do that? And she goes, hmm, sometimes I think I'd like to do it. But then sometimes I think, no, nah, it's okay. And I said, so if you, were, if you didn't have the, the hemorrhage, you think you'd be gymming now? I thought that's a bit dangerous, that question, but okay. Let's see if we're getting this far in the conversation. And then she says, you know, that's a really dumb question. And I said, why would that be a dumb question? And she goes, do you know what you would be doing three years from now? Exactly what you'd be doing? Do you know what three years ago, what you were doing today? And I was like, not always. And she goes, well, what makes you think I would know three years ago what I'd be doing three years from three years ago? This kind of philosophy. And I looked at her and went, that's a really good answer. That's a good answer. And she says, yes. So 
So I can't answer that question, Papa. That's really dumb. And I was like, okay. So, um, so we're done now, are we? And she's like, yeah. I like I that she managed to get an insult in there as well. <laughs> I love it. I thought, well, she's starting to open up to this whole thing that happened and think about it and think back and think forward. And she can talk about it without getting, uh, without shutting down. Mm. So I don't push her on it. But now and again, I do ask the odd question to see what's happening there. Are we open to talking about this or not? And most of the time, no, but that's the first time she said it. And then I thought, okay, so you've thought about it. You reflect on it. You've been triggered by it. And you give it a little place, however you do that. Mm. Uh, and it, and we go on with it. You know what I mean? So it's fascinating. Now it's fascinating to watch emotional, how she develops. And uh, we can talk about that time. And what she remembers and what she doesn't remember. Um, yeah, that's... That's very interesting now that she can tell me sometimes what she remembers. She doesn't remember the bad stuff. She doesn't remember the pain, the operations. There was lots of that. There was lots of pain and lots of crying and screaming and all that. But that's blocked. But she remembers the odd thing that were really funny when we were trying to make videos in a hospital bed when she was was talking like this and doing music videos. And she thought it was pretty cool. And she was like this, you know, doing that sign with her right hand. And she wanted me to publish it. (laughs) Facebook and I was like okay we are completely bandaged her her head three times the size it's normally from the operation right and she wanted me to publish it and now if she has a bad hair day it's like don't you put that photo of me on Instagram but it's yeah it's all yeah it's it's weird but it's also wonderful to to go back and forth between the two times and see how she's processing it. Mm. So with your ex-partner, like have you guys forged a better relationship, like a closer relationship throughout all of this? Or Well, she's not, I'll set the record straight, she's not my ex-partner, not that it matters, but um, I'm gay, she's not, and we had ah. a, a good friendship years ago. Ah, I see, and, I see. Um, yeah, and I suggested we have a child together, and we did. And it went kind of wrong pretty quickly. And then Miller's operation or Miller's um, hemorrhage brought us together for a short period. Ah, and we became okay. friends again. Yeah. It lasted three or four months. And as soon as Miller recovered, or looked like she was you know, recovering, <coughs> we kind of separated. And so we don't have a, a terrible relationship. We just don't have a friendly relationship. We don't talk unless it's necessary yeah. to talk. It's a shame. But... Yeah, I guess the differences were still there. So we united when we needed to without even thinking about it. And then our old stuff came back up when we didn't need her so much, you know what I mean? So, yeah. yeah. Luckily for Mida, we were able to unite. But no, we don't have a, um, we don't have a terrible relationship. We just don't have a friendly relationship. Okay, I was just curious about how yeah. that all panned out. But um, throughout this process, what helped you get through this? So was there advice or were there friends or family or were there certain people who just really held your hand through this? Or like what what helped? Because this is this is an absolutely tragic thing to happen and like really hard and like I'm I'm guessing you're trying to still function and work and do all the normal grown-up things that you have to do throughout all of this meanwhile you've got this huge thing going on in your life so 
what gets you through that apart from stoicism? Because I am totally with you on stoicism. I think it's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, besides character, <laughs> um, I think resilience. But outside of myself, I would say <clears throat> my support network was huge. Family. Um, there in Sydney, of course, I'm in Amsterdam. My sister Carla came twice. Well, the first time when Mina was recovering and the second time just afterwards, just to see her and me. That was amazing. My other sister wanted to come but couldn't because she got a family and all this kind of stuff. It wasn't good timing. My mum couldn't fly at that time, but she came afterwards. My friends here in Holland. I mean, I didn't want the support at the time. I didn't want people to come to the hospital. You just don't because you're too tired and you're too emotional and all that. But they did. I don't know, the, the friends, the, really the, the support was amazing. I had a friend who flew from Hong Kong back to come and see us. Um, I mean, they, I just knew they were there and they wanted to help, but there's nothing you could do, right? It, it's the emotional support and the fact that I knew they were there um, that helped the most. I just knew it and I felt it. Um, but I really think it's just resilience and um, belief, just belief in if if you love someone enough or if you if you uh, can accept things the way they are for that period of time, that can help someone. The energy can help someone recover. The belief, you know, she did. Mina never saw us hysterically crying or talking negatively to doctors about the situation. Never. And we didn't pretend. I think it was just the way we were. We really bonded. All the friends who came to see her, you know, Mino never probably realized how bad it was because um, she didn't need to know how bad it was. And I think the energy and the love that took her through really just carried her all the way through. That probably played as much a role in her recovery as the physical therapy. I think it's a whole bunch of stuff. The whole ecosystem, if you like, that she was in, surrounded by, even the nurses, amazing nurses and doctors, they were full of love and um, dedication and friendliness. And I mean, the energy just carried her through, all the way through, you know? And yeah. I think that's, I was very fortunate to be surrounded by people like that. That's what really, I think that's what it was. It was the energy and the, the resilience, the love, the belief that, you know, one day at a time, we're going to get where we need to be, where you need to be. It's going to be all okay, one way or the other. And it always is. So, yeah, we're very lucky. Very, very lucky. I, don't, I can't thank them enough. I mean, I did. I tried. My friends, my family, and, and the support staff, you can't thank them enough. Mm. How do you thank them? Yeah. I guess one more thing, um, if this happened to somebody else, if you were to meet someone whose child had just had a brain hemorrhage, what would you say to them? Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just say, just, just be there for your kid. Just be there 100%, love them to death, and that's it. And then let itself work itself out. Do what you feel you need to do, but just love your kid to death and give the support and the love and the unconditional love. That's it. If you do that, 
and you work from that space, I mean, that's the, that's all the kid needs. And the rest of the stuff happens. And you can't control that. You can't control if it's a good surgeon or it's a good therapist. You can't really control that. You can only control what you do, how you are. And if you love that kid and show that kid that you're there, that kid will do what the kid can do to get where that kid can get. And if you love them, you'll accept it. I think every parent loves their kid, right? So we underestimate that that part of it. The unconditional love, cool. they can do miracles. I, I'm convinced because I've seen Mina. Okay. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Mark. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Um, if you want to track down Mark, he's at um, www.markcavallo.com. He's a counsellor, therapist. He can, he can help Mark you in Cavallo lots. Coaching. <laughs> coaching. Sorry, markcavallocoaching.com. I'm so sorry. That's okay. um, but um, yeah, it's, um, oh, wow. That's, that's a huge thing to happen. And I just hope that she becomes increasingly more painful as a teenager. And you can just go back to having a normal father-daughter relationship where you tell her to put more clothes on and she takes them off <laughs> as soon as she leaves the house. <laughs> Cool. Thanks so much, Mark. Thanks, Emma. Listening to that shit show. If you like what you heard, please head to the website thatshitshow.com to download more episodes or read the show notes. Also, if anything you've heard today has triggered you and made you upset in any way, and you'd like to talk about it, please head to the Lifeline website, lifeline.org.au. The number to call is 131114 because this is heavy stuff and I understand that it can bring up your own emotions um, and your own traumas. So please do reach out for help. Uh, And in the meantime, thanks so much for listening.